Hello, humans, and welcome to Canadian Fakin. This is episode 33 of your Power Report. I'm Dan from the internet. And there's a lot going on in the United States right now. Um, the day-to-day drama of progressives battle with the Trump Democrats like uh, Kirsten Cinema and Joe Manchin over the dueling uh, budget reconciliation bills and the infrastructure bill are really, really uh, sweet and interesting to watch. You're really seeing... Um, everyone's true colors on the left, on the um, right of the Democratic Party, like in all parts of the Democratic Party, uh, it's really knives out. It's really great to watch. And so I want to kind of, it's enticing and I want to continue following it. I am following it. But once it sort of wraps up and we get a conclusion out of all of this, so we don't get lost in the minutia of the day-to-day what's going on, um, we're going to talk about it in a proper episode later. So right now I want to talk about you know, get an opportunity to shift gears on this edition of Power Report and talk about world news, talk about um, what we can learn from some recent elections that have concluded in uh, Canada in the first part of this episode and in Germany in the second part of this episode. And maybe there's some things we can learn, but I want to also make the distinction that these are different countries with vastly different histories than the United States. And while you can draw similarities because we're all existing in the same context in time. There are different historical contexts for each of these countries. And so any similarities that you're drawing are not absolute or final. Just keep that in mind. Um, I don't want to lose sight about what's happening around the world, though, because I think there are a lot of important lessons, that caveat being said, that can be drawn out for the left. And so I want to present the opportunity to do that. So let's get started with this episode. First, I was joined by Sandy. I have a YouTube channel called Left of the Box, where I dive into Canadian politics and social issues. And I try to look at it from a perspective of people with disabilities and poverty. Those are things that I have personal experience with. And I find that they're not talked about very often on the main stage. We tend to be excluded from the conversation a lot of the time. Sandy can be found on Twitter at Sandy Lovas and at youtube.com slash left of the box. Once you start to hear Sandy and the way that Sandy dissects uh, Canadian politics, you want to make sure you're following youtube.com slash left of the box. And then later on the show, uh, Sean, PowerPoint regular, will join me to go to Europe and the German elections, where we had some really interesting developments for the left, actually, for once, that um, might, you know, have some interesting context for the future. So... Before we begin, though, I think it's a really useful for a breakdown on how parliamentary systems work as well. Sean gave a really uh, great it- breakdown about that because Canada and Germany both have parliamentary systems. And so I'm going to copy-paste that part from the second part of the episode right here, just as a primer. But how it works in Germany for like the political process is you don't vote for a candidate. You vote for a party who then puts in... Uh, a central figurehead or two, depending on the party, as their representative leaders. With Very similar America. to, I was just going to say, um, just for the context of this episode, just similar to Canada. Yes, very similar to Canada. And I gave you that warning so you don't get deja vu when you hear it again later in the episode. Um, and uh, I get deja vu about hearing myself and hearing the audience, um, sorry, and hearing the people I'm interviewing and then editing the people I'm interviewing a lot. So trust me, I'm used to it. But um yeah, I, it's really important to understand parliamentary systems and the way they are organized, even though Germany and Canada have slight variations on the parliamentary system, because then you'll understand how the elections work and how it's very different from the United States. Um, anyways, you can also, by the way, find Sean, of course, on episodes of Power Report and with me on Audio Face. Um, it was really interesting because we're usually doing a music podcast together, but this time we 
we're doing a political podcast together. Um, and Sean's very knowledgeable on German history and German politics. And so it was really great to talk to him about that. All right, let's go. Sandy, so thank you very much for joining me. I'm really excited to get to talk to you about Canadian politics because I'm admittedly very ignorant about it. But um, thankfully, on this show, I think it'll be a really great learning experience for um, myself and the audience to really get um, a knowledgeable leftist perspective on the situation in Canada and what is going on. But so before we get into the like the most recent um, Canadian uh, elections, they were like a snap election. Uh, type of process where Justin Trudeau was sort of able to call it in supposedly emergency circumstances. But I think before we even get into the uh, not-so-emergency circumstances, in fact, the unusual circumstances in which the SNAP election was even called for, which I think there's a lot of controversy, can you just give um, our audience a bit of like a quick cursory overview of the Canadian political parties, the ones that are like most active, that have like the major play in Canadian government before we kind of give some context as to why Justin Trudeau felt so confident to even call the snap election in the first place. Okay, so we have five main parties, although I don't know if the Green Party really counts because they're so tiny. Uh, there's the Liberal Party, which would be very similar to your uh, Democratic establishment party, uh, neoliberal kind of, they're not really centered. They're somewhat a bit to the right at times. Then there's the Conservative Party. Uh, they're bad. <laughs> They've uh, kind of stopped hiding some of their more racist tendencies. The current leader did try to go a little bit more center on the environment, but that was rejected by the party overall. So it's a mixed bag, but... They're trying to get more popularity and much like your your conservative party in the States to try to get that popularity. They're moving more right. Then there's the NDP, the New Democrat Party. They would be similar to, I guess, your squad. Uh, they're more progressive. They're they want things like universal pharmacare, universal child care, some sort of guaranteed livable income, looking after working people, that sort of thing. And then the other major player is the Bloc Québécois. They only exist in Quebec. They are a separatist party. So the most they can ever win is 78 out of the 338 seats because, like I said, they only have ridings in Quebec. And their primary goal is to eventually separate from Canada, be their own independent country. There was a referendum on that back in the 90s, and uh, it was a sliver margin of a vote to keep them actually in Canada. And then we do have a Green Party, but the Green Party is an absolute mess right now. They only have two seats in the House. There was a lot of, when we start talking more about the election, there was a lot of stuff that happened in there that I'm surprised they managed to maintain any semblance of a party going forward. So it's, uh, and then there's like 16 other small parties that, you know, people try to go for. One of the ones that we have to be a bit wary of is the People Party of Canada, the PPC. They're the kind of conspiratist, 
more racist, more right wing than the conservatives. And considering the conservative slogan for this last election was secure the future, that, that's saying a lot. And their rise in popularity is uh, very worrying. Uh, I, I think I, for Americans, I think it's always interesting to see what will get, I think, I'm kind of getting ahead of myself here, but I think what Americans might first see is, oh, what? how interesting, a parliamentary system with more than two parties and effective power. I think we'll kind of learn in reality, unfortunately in Canada, that's not quite the truest thing. The um, There are effectively two parties that like have the most power in Canada still, um, but you get so many flavors of a lot of different ideologies and Unfortunately, because of like other tendencies, you tend to be getting like in other parts of the world, especially in the United States, um, because unfortunately, a lot of uh, I'm getting a lot of conservatives in Canada who seem to be taking cues from conservatives in the United States down to uh, complaining about Americans not being able to say our national anthem like you're Canadian. Why do you care? Uh, but the fact that you have even like a flavor of the right wing that is even more extreme than the already extreme conservative party is really worrying actually um doesn't really bode well for the you know um future of canada if they get more power i don't think right yeah like canada loves to portray this image to the rest of the world that we're a very progressive country we're very accepting that sort of thing but when you look at what our exports are you have oil and white nationalism like you know the proud boy started here we we've sent you a lot of um, white nationalists that have, like Jordan Peterson and all that sort of stuff. So it is a problem here. Yeah. Um, and so wh- wh- let's get into more of why Justin Trudeau called this election in the first place because um, I-, I think the the election was scheduled for two years in. Correct me if I'm wrong here, but the regular election would have been scheduled for at least like a year and a half out, right? So you would have had, you know, maybe COVID-19 would have been a little bit more handled. Vaccines hopefully will have permeated more throughout Canadian society by then. And so why did Justin Trudeau choose to call the snap election like right now and then like send Canada into this um, hundreds of millions of dollars of a frenzy and what was the result of that? Like, were, were, were there any gains from this effort? Yeah, it was the most expensive election in our history with the lowest turnout to get almost the exact same results and the ruling party to have the lowest percentage of the popular vote ever. Justin Trudeau, he called it basically because he wanted a power grab. Polling suggested that he had the chance of winning a majority because before the election and currently, he has a minority. So he doesn't have 50% of the seats in parliament. So if the liberals want to pass anything, they have to team up with one of the other parties to actually get the votes through. And he was hoping, just based on the polling, that he could get it so that they could get just over that 50% of seats in the House. So then they could just pass whatever they want because they don't really like working with the other parties so much. And that is all because really in Canada, we have the four year frame between elections. 
But in between that, you should only be really calling an election if the throne speech doesn't pass, a money bill doesn't pass, or a motion of non-confidence is made and passed. Those are really the only reasons, barring the you know extreme circumstances, why an election should be called. There is absolutely no reason to call this, especially during our fourth wave going into COVID. It put everyone at risk. He kept the election period to the shortest possible time frame of 36 days, which I imagine to you Americans sounds quite lovely. Divine. I mean, <laughs> our longest periods are 50 days. But I find the problem with that is that Canadians only really plug into politics sort of during an election campaign. And so they're not absorbing a lot of information. The parties aren't getting out information. So it's very easy for Canadians to remain unplugged and just vote for the same party that they've always voted for without actually checking the records or getting into the details of. Liberals make promises all the time that sound great. They do not keep them at all. The amount of broken promises they have is just, it's crazy, and yet people will still vote for them, or people will still say, oh, they're promising universal child care if they get a majority. They've been promising universal child care since the 90s. It's just something that people seem to continuously fall for because we're so unplugged from politics. And yeah, we only ever have two parties that have been in charge of the country, and that's the Conservatives and the Liberals. Because... Having a parliamentary system can be beneficial because you have the influence of the other parties, but we don't have proportional representation. It's a first-past-the-post system. So right now, the liberals have the, they're the ones in charge. They have 32% of the popular vote, which is just crazy. The conservatives have more in the popular vote. But it's just the way it's laid out. Like when you compare the biggest differences between the NDP and the Bloc Québécois, the NDP has 17% of the popular vote. The Bloc has just under 8% of the popular vote, and yet the Bloc has 33 seats and the NDP has 25. So it doesn't actually reflect what Canadians want. It's just basically in any given writing, we don't vote for our prime minister here. We vote for a party and we vote for a member of parliament in our riding. And if you have, let's say we have 10 candidates and 100 votes, eight of those candidates receive 10 votes, but then one candidate receives nine votes and another candidate receives 11 votes, then the person with the 11 votes wins. Despite the fact that it's nowhere near 50%. Yeah, and despite the fact that in that example, you have a large number of people who did not participate in that process. And so similarly, um, to give it to like a context for viewers of PowerPoint recently, what happened in the California recall, where you could essentially have a vast minority of actual people elect a governor um, given a certain like kind of circumstance... Uh, it seems to be my understanding that that's a lot of what happens in the Canadian system when you're electing at least like representatives and things like that. Um, and so it kind of baffles me again, like where 
this was a very expensive election. Again, vastly, I mean, again, not to make mass comparisons, vastly less expensive than even like the um, American elections, which individual candidates on the congressional level may spend the American equivalent to $600 billion Canadian. But, you know, now presidential candidates, I think Obama was the first one to shoot past a billion dollars in his campaign alone. And so um, it, it just really... I think we're starting to get like numb to a lot of these numbers here, but the fact that even with all that effort, there's effectively no change and not even a lot of participation on the democratic level, I think says to something that I could at least parallel in America slightly, which seems to be that the broader Canadian public, or correct me if I'm wrong here, is it that the broader Canadian public feels disenfranchised like either uh, is the reason behind the lack of voting here something that is systemic like is are there efforts to suppress the vote similar to as there are in the united states or is it a matter of people going okay it's this two-party system it's kind of rigged to begin with i don't feel like my vote matters necessarily to kind of like sloppily apply an american contextual uh bit of discourse to Canadian politics. What does that sort of look like on the level to explain the lack of turnout there? I think most Canadians were just frustrated because it feels like nothing will change. It's liberal Tory, same old story. Because in a lot of writings, it really is true. Your vote doesn't necessarily matter because as soon as a candidate hits a plurality, that writing is won. So, you know, you can have all the NDP support you want across the country, but unless they're winning the ridings, it has zero impact on the overall shape of the country. Um, and we don't have uh, voter suppression the same way as in the States, but there were a lot of issues this round. In Canada, we have um, Elections Canada. So they're funded by the government, but they're kind of independent from the government and they run all of our elections provincially and federally. And this time, there were no polling stations on college and university campuses, which is not common. That's very uncommon for us. So a lot of students weren't able to gain access to vote because they'd have to travel away from their campuses and who has a car. A lot of indigenous communities didn't receive a polling station. And it's not like they can just go to a neighboring community because these communities are spread out far, far apart. There were fewer polling stations than there has been in the past. In Toronto in particular, it was pretty bad. There was lineups that were two hours long. And for us, that's long. I, I've seen the stories in the States, but the vast majority of elections I've been in, you just walk in and vote. It's just as simple as that. Like I moved recently, so all I had to do was walk in with, you know, something to prove my new address and change it on the spot and no issues, no questions asked. So we do have access to voting. We There were a lot more mail-in votes this time because of the fear of COVID, but a lot of those mail-in votes came in too late for people to actually send them back on time, which was, again, another issue and their problem. Like we spent for us, it was $610 million, which I think in American dollars is like 79. I don't know. Conversion. I'm bad at that. Um, so we spent all this money 
to get an election process that wasn't nearly as smooth as we have had in the past. Apparently, some money had to go into training uh, for the extra COVID measures, security at some of the polling stations, because this election in particular, things were starting to get pretty violent. Uh, one campaign stop, uh, Justin Trudeau was at, somebody was throwing like actual rocks at him. And, you know, the anti-maskers in Canada, they're, they're becoming a problem. Like they've been blocking off hospitals so people can't even get into hospitals. The, you know, threats of violence are on the increase, just people's general attitude. It's becoming more dangerous during election season. So a lot of people, they didn't want to deal with like an anti-masker at a polling station. So you had fewer people that wanted to, you know, be in a polling station, to work in a polling station. Plus, a lot of the polling stations are run by people who are seniors and they were afraid of COVID, so they didn't want to run. So Elections Canada was extremely understaffed. And so a lot of Canadians that may have wanted to vote weren't able to vote. So this election turnout was only 58% of the people who could vote came out. And of that, 32% went to the Liberals. So that's when you look at the overall population of Canada, that's a tiny percentage of people that the Liberals now claim they have a clear mandate to rule over, which no, no, you don't. They yeah. ended up being, yeah, they no, ended no, up being, on. yeah, they ended up gaining one and a half seats. And what I mean by that is one of their candidates a few days before the election, it was revealed that he had sexual assault allegations. Uh, he was charged with it, but apparently those charges were dropped, but he didn't uh, disclose that during the vetting process. And so the Liberal Party wanted to, they said that they're not going to let him sit as a Liberal because it was so close to the election, he still won as a Liberal, which really, upset a lot of people because had they known about this ahead of time, they might have changed their vote. The people who have gone to early polling stations, mail-in votes, a lot of people are unhappy with this. So even though he's going to be sort of sitting as an independent, he's still going to vote with the Liberals all the time because at this moment, he says that he's not planning on stepping down as an MP, which there's just no accountability. There were five other candidates that during the election had to drop out uh, for sexual assault allegations, for anti-Semitic tweets that were revealed, Islamic phobic tweets that were revealed. Like, I know the vetting system is better than that. And so for these to come out after the point of no return on the ballot, I find is very suspicious it's almost like they were hoping that they could just slide it through without people noticing and it also seems like the liberal party making a political calculation about how razor thin the margins are figured out that you know similarly again to draw another parallel in america how democrats got really really mum about me too and about um some of joe biden's on-camera creepiness um when it came to the tara reed stuff and there were like at least some like allegations that were coming forward about Joe Biden's like potential behavior, not just like with that instance, but in others overall. And uh, Democrats who were very eager, um, I would argue like rightfully so, 
at least two years ago to want to hold Trump and Republicans and um, folks in the media and folks in other very high visibility industries accountable. Um, now that the Me Too movement has sort of, um, you know, not the talk of the news every single day, um, there's less talk about, okay, who are people who are less visible in these spaces and what um, kind of justice comes for them, people who are, don't work in the media, but people who work um, in often exploitative working conditions where it makes um, sexual harassment that much more um, dangerous and harmful. Uh, and to say nothing about the fact that, like, the hypocrisy you have here on the political level, that these these people will use the activism around this very important moment as a tool to get elected. But when it comes time to be accountable, they sort of just will let that fall by the wayside and won't really care about it too much. Um, I just think that's really interesting. And i also make one clarification, though, just because I guess I am the money guy. Um, $600 million Canadians around 474000 US dollars just because of um, good old exchange rates. But um, no, that's just a clarification. Uh, but I don't know if you had any thoughts on like that, just sort of the way that the Liberal Party will use um, like these sort of th movements to their own advantage, cynically. Yeah, uh, Justin Trudeau is absolutely notorious for that sort of thing. He will go, um, you know, give a few tears at a ceremony for Indigenous peoples. But then uh, on September 30th, was our first uh, national day for truth and reconciliation to reflect on um, the crimes against committed against indigenous peoples to, you know, raise their stories up. And it's supposed to be a day of like reflection and thinking and understanding. He went on on vacation to a beach in BC for the first day, for the first one, he went on a vacation. It'd be like going on vacation for Veterans Day or Remembrance Day or... For the first one, yeah. though. Like the very first Veterans Day where, like, you are elected in office to, like, make Veterans Day happen. One mm -hmm. of the easier things to do in America is just make a holiday happen. Like, um, this doesn't happen very much in America because um, work sets you free here, but... And even that doesn't really happen. But... um. We got a new federal holiday out of Juneteenth recently, and I, as like a extremely cynical, radical, um, at Black American, I was actually sort of like, okay, this isn't like the end of the struggle, but hey, it's a, it's a day off, and it's recognizing this um, sort of somber moment in um, Black American history that a lot of Americans, white Americans, and other folks of colors didn't even really know about just because of how like poor it was taught about. But um, to 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 think that. Joe Biden didn't take a day off. Joe Biden was doing like events and stuff and, you know, trying to acknowledge like, I mean, if anything, it's a political victory lap for you. So like the fact mm -hmm. that Justin Trudeau would do something like that sounds as like politically miscalculating as, you know, repeatedly wearing blackface. Yeah. Like, and it's not just that he went on vacation. Like, seriously, he could have waited a day, but the official itinerary for the prime minister was released that he was supposed to be in meetings in Ottawa that day. Plus it was revealed that he uh, declined invites from indigenous communities in BC that he was near to go and sit with talk with them. Instead, he's like, yeah, he was on the phone to a couple residential school survivors during his day off, which. You That's know, literally phoning it in. 
Yeah. Like it's, and there was another blackface photo of Justin Trudeau released a few days before the election. And the way that his supporters try to justify everything he does, I can't wrap my head around. It's like, well, he deserves a vacation or, well, he still made some phone calls or, you know, like, they're trying so hard to justify every single thing, and yet they rarely mention the blackface photos. And then some people even try to claim, well, he was brownface in some of them, and that's not really a thing. <laughs> Worst argument ever, honestly. <laughs> so... The thing that just drives me crazy about this is despite everything he does, you have his supporters just backing him and he's never been held accountable for everything he's done. Like there's three instances that we know of where he's worn blackface. And when asked how many times he has, he said he didn't know. Like if you lost count, it's probably too many. Yeah, it does inspire a lot of confidence when you when you're like, <laughs> I, I mean, on the one hand, it's I'm not trying to be fair to the guy, but it's one of those like, how many times do you beat your wife questions? Like, there's not really a great way to get out of that. That being said, one great way to get out of it, Justin Trudeau, who like, it's not like he just, you know, um, lackadaisically walked into politics. Trudeau is part of a very entrenched political family in Canada. You would think that he would know, oh, hey maybe, you know, if I have a political career in the future or not, the blackface might be a problem in that political future or just that future future or just like as a moral person. I, I happen to have a lot of like white friends who, to my knowledge, just managed to make it through their years and didn't do blackface. So I don't know how Trudeau got himself into this situation, honestly. I do theater. I love wearing costumes. Wearing blackface has never crossed my mind. Uh <laughs> It, it's yeah he reeks of privilege and entitlement like Pierre Trudeau was prime minister in Canada back in the early 80s so that's his father and so he does come from that political dynasty I have issues with that because back when Pierre was prime minister the Kamloops residential school which was in the news not too long ago with the discovery of the 215 uh, children in a grave. His dad was prime minister during that time. Like, how, how much do you think Justin is actually going to look into that? And something that, again, a lot of Canadians are forgetting is that these discoveries have continued to happen. And the news is not saying anything about it. There are thousands of newly discovered graves that are not being talked about by the mainstream media at all. And that's something that could have been, you know, talked about on the National Day of Truth and Reconciliation, and yet they were quiet about it. And when it comes to things like the sexual assault allegations in his party, like one of the people who had to drop out earlier in this election was because he had sexual assault allegations against him. But apparently something new came up because Justin Trudeau knew about this before this guy became a candidate and defended it, saying that they have a thorough process and they don't think anything bad happened. And 
previously another liberal candidate, a uh, liberal MP had to step down as an MP because um, he was charged with break and entering and stalking basically. And so he still has to go to court for that. Luckily he didn't, he decided not to try to run again this time. And these are the type of people that seem to be drawn to the liberal party. And when people just try to brush it off, like their allegations, you know, charges were dropped. What that tells people who have been victims of these sorts of things is that they don't matter, that they don't care, that if the allegations were false, and I say if because chance, uh, I'm not too hopeful that they're false. It tells you know, mostly women and uh, non-binary folk that present female, that they're okay with having these people in office. That somehow, out of the thousands and thousands of people in a riding, they couldn't find somebody who hasn't had allegations leveled against them. And you see how they support each other and how they, you know, back up each other. And it just tells women, minorities, people with disabilities, that in Canada, we simply don't matter. And it makes me sick because I'm a person with disabilities, mental health issues. What this government has done to us is gross. We can now apply for medical assistance in dying. It's called MAID. Without any other help. So there's no offer to help us with housing. There's no offer to increase our, our payments to actually, to just to meet the poverty line. We're usually 30 to 40% under the poverty line and expected to survive on that. You know, some of our medications aren't covered. A lot of our medical needs aren't covered. So they're not willing to help us in life at all, but they're more than happy to help us die. And that's the state of our government right now. And that's why, like, a lot of people, it's like, oh, well, the liberals aren't so bad. I just want to scream at them because we are suffering and dying under the liberals. And people just brush it off because, you know, I, I want to try to blame the United States for this one. A lot of people point at the United States and say we're not that bad. So, you know, so, yeah, our healthcare system is being dismantled. Yes, we aren't looking after people, but we're not as bad as you guys. So really, we shouldn't be complaining at all. It's that's a, a general that's, attitude. <laughs> that's a really interesting dynamic. And um, like to, to see America being used as, oh, well, at least we're not X, Y, or Z here. Mm -hmm. um, it, it, it's something I definitely, even myself, don't think about as like uh, America through all of the goodwill it has built with, you know, elites over the past hundred years because it is enriched world elites by um modernizing colonialism if you will and bring it to a you know hyper industrial capitalist age where now um the u.s is getting beaten by its own game by um china and other countries who are just like developing capitalism in like newer almost more exploitative ways um in conjunction with the united states still but you still have this feeling that you know whatever the united states is doing um 
we can sort of follow the lead from. Again, sort of among the elites. I think you sort of get this in filtering throughout culture as well. Like I do a music podcast and a lot of um, music internationally follows cues from America. Although um, I think a lot of the cooler music as well um, tends to come from other countries more like natively. But again, (laughs) that's a different podcast. Uh, But ultimately the idea that, that I wanted to kind of get from what you said, which was kind of amazing I think I'll take away from this is that America being used by elites as an example of austerity politics, because the left so often tries to use the advantage or like the example of um, social welfare programs that exist in Europe and company in countries like Germany or in England or in um, countries like Canada, when we talk about uh, y'all's healthcare system, we're constantly making the distinction between how much uh, the price of prescription drugs cost in Canada as opposed to they do in the United States because of the way that pharmacare in Canada is able to negotiate for those prescription drug prices in some contexts, right? It's not the um, story that Americans don't get is that that's not fully comprehensive. It's not complete. It doesn't do everything. Um, and it's leaving a lot to be... Um, desired by but the fact that in the past 10 15 years it's being actively cut is a difference like it's being actively scaled back and taken away and so what is in in america similarly it's very bleak but like you mentioned there are some um political parties in canada you mentioned like the new democratic party there's been um some really like uh figures from the ndp who have started to make some international waves a little bit at least in online leftist spaces um what is the insurgent left response look like in canada at least on the um political level before we go to like the grassroots level and what Mm -hmm. sort of policy agendas are, are like agenda items are they really trying to put forward in place right now um you know like in america priorities and a lot of like leftist um insurgent parties around the world priorities really shift around climate change right now especially but um what what is the left really fighting for right now and what is their progress at least when it comes to inside of the political system okay um so just before i get to the ndp i just want to say like part of the reason why i think canada and the united states we need more cross-border solidarity with the left is the way I see the dynamic is the American people see what the Canadian people get and say, I want that. Meanwhile, the Canadian government looks at what the American government gets away with and says they want that. And right now, the Canadian government is winning that dynamic. So how much harder will it be for you guys if one day you can no longer say, well, look at the drug prices in Canada. They're so cheap. Like, what happens when that's no longer an issue? What happens, like, would you guys have gotten marriage equality if we hadn't done it first? Our countries are so fundamentally tied together, and we take cues from each other. And this is why, like, our left needs to work with your left more. So we have the NDP, and they are pushing for more left-leaning policies, but they often don't go far enough. So one thing that they promised was to build 500,000 affordable homes over the next 10 years. We need that in Ontario now, and that won't even solve the problem. 
because we have a housing crisis that is just as bad and probably in some places a lot worse than yours. And so they do, the NDP is like our best hope, I guess you could say, of starting to move things in a more left-leaning direction. And with a minority government, there is still at least the possibility of getting some more left-leaning bills through. Like we got the um, the $2,000 a month that Canada likes to brag about, which was not granted to every Canadian. It was means tested and it left millions with nothing. But it did help a lot of people. The only reason why we got that was because of the NDP. They were pushing for it. They pushed to, you know, put a freeze on student loans. So they do push the Liberals more left on certain things. But when it comes to like taxing the wealthy or taxing the corporations, the Liberals and Conservatives vote the same all the time. And so they don't need the, the NDP support. They have the Conservative support for that sort of stuff. Like if you want to buy in their pipeline, they're, they're, both those parties are more than happy to do that. Our emissions have actually gone up over, you know, the past year. You know, we're, we're not even though. To... Sorry to interrupt that, but like, even though Justin Trudeau made such a big deal about being part of the Paris Climate Accords when Donald Trump left office, right? So, like, here is Justin Trudeau making a big deal, posturing off of America. This time, using America as a different rhetorical tool, saying, "Hey, look at what we're doing in response to the barbaric Americans. We're Canada. This is who we are. This is what we're talking about. Who Canada is, and what who what Canada is talking about is um, a, a concept that you." brilliantly introduced me to um, when I was on Left of the Box on um, your show, which is maple washing. The idea that can it's almost like Canadian exceptionalism, this idea that, um, you know, we're just, we as Canadians, as I'm now saying this, are, um, you know, just a little bit exceptional, just a little bit a cut above. We're nicer, we're kinder, we try to do things in a little bit more of a humane way. And so what maple washing does is it creates this um, sort of easy narrative for people who want to have that sort of empty Canadian pride to have. Meanwhile, just barely, like not even talking just a little bit beneath the surface, it's all lies. The fact that emissions actually went up in Canada during um, COVID-19 when there are fewer people in cars, at least supposedly, fewer people traveling, all these different things. Uh, Justin Trudeau should be ashamed for all of the posturing he did, not even like months or recent years ago, not even five years ago, in his same administration that um, he is doing right now and going back on these climate accords. I, and yeah, I, I, I only wanted to point out there, but I think it's just so interesting that, yeah, that's something that no one's asking any elected official to do in America is to build solidarity with the left in other countries, like politically, like actual political power. So we can start to say, okay, um, let's main, let's start to have human rights and start to have some consistent human rights structure that crosses borders while still respecting um, individual laws within those borders. Yeah. Because again, we're both G7 countries Behind the scenes, Canada props up the United States and like overseas conflicts and all that sort of stuff. And unless the left starts working together, we're never going to get anything done. Because like recently in your news was the funding for the Iron Dome around Israel. Okay, so let's say you were able to push it through and so that funding didn't happen. It changes nothing because Canada is also sending money to Israel. 
for weapons and stuff. Like, unless we, we do it together, it doesn't actually make a difference. And meanwhile, on the right, they they joined forces at um, some of the encampments, the houseless encampments that we have in Canada, because we do have a lot of them. They get violently destroyed by police officers and private security. They spend millions and millions to, you know, destroy these encampments when it would have cost us a fraction of the price to properly house everyone in it. And some of the private security were seen wearing U.S., Canada, thin blue line solidarity badges. So the right already, they're already working together. Meanwhile, on the left, like a prime example of this is when I was looking into politics on Canada more because before I started my channel, I knew a bit, but I'm learning so much more now. We have a communist party and a Marxist-Leninist party. They're the same Thing, but they refuse to work together. <laughs> it's the left just has no desire to work with each other. And then in the NDP, I know that there's a lot of fractures right now. Like I still supported the NDP. I still asked people to vote for the NDP in this past election because they are our best hope. But like I said, their policies don't go far enough and they're now rejecting people from that party who might be more left-leaning. Because in Canada, you can't just run for a party. You have to, you know, pass their vetting. The party itself has to approve each and every single candidate that they have. And so if they don't want people who believe a certain thing, they vet them out. So you never even have a chance to run as a candidate. And I'm just, it's so frustrating that on the left, we can't seem to get it together. And the disturbing thing on the NDP is that they're they're getting rid of all these progressive people and yet they still support the premier of BC who is uh, NDP. So they're the provincial government there. And he's just out and out conservative when you actually look at the things that he's doing. He's a horrible person. There's the um, the Ferry Creek issue right now around the uh, the trees, the largest trees in the world, you know, being chopped down. Actually, I don't know if they're in the world, but they're pretty big trees, old growth forest. And they're trying to prevent the logging of it. And the Horgan government has sent in police and violence and RCMP and it's been brutal. And during their heat waves there and stuff, he was just, you know, telling people, oh, well, you need to basically go indoors and turn on the air conditioner. And it's like, okay, if you're living on the streets, like who's going to accept you in their home so you can enjoy their air conditioner? And hundreds of people died during that. Hundred, like a, a town was wiped off the map because of a forest fire. And it took him one, two days to actually call in and see how some of them were doing because it was an indigenous community. He was more concerned about their cattle than he was about the actual people making it to safety. And so Horgan is horrible because then what that tells people is that if the NDP gets into power, this is what you can expect, a complete turnaround. And so it would have been really important for Jagmeet Singh to say, I don't agree with this, or, you know, I don't appreciate this. Instead, he was like, he's our guy. 
we like him, we support him. And meanwhile, they did nothing to help support some of the progressive, um, I believe it was Nikki Ashton who had a, a conference call with Jeremy Corbyn to talk about, you know, solidarity, international solidarity. And by apparently talking to him, you're accused of being anti-Semitic and stuff. And she got very, very little support from the actual NDP on what she was trying to do. And so the more progressive people in the party already don't receive much support from the overall organization. So even the NDP is starting to move more towards the center, which, you know, I wish I could say I'm more hopeful about the situation, but unless there's a major overhaul of that party, I don't know how. Because, you know, there are going to be people who want to fight back, but if the party doesn't let you in, there's no way to actually change the party from within. Yeah, I I see some really like chilling parallels. Um for one, I I hope that the trajectory of the NDP changes or that um they understand like or at least like figure out how to do politics a little bit better. I'm not going to like say like as an American, "Oh, I know exactly what the NDP should do based off of just one conversation here, right?" But I I see so many parallels with the fact that you don't need to know a lot about American politics or like Canadian politics to know that the way to win in politics in a democratic system where you have to rely on people's support for you is to win their trust, is to say, I'm going to fight for you and to prove it in some way. If you've never been a politician before, then you prove it through um, forms of activism that you can do outside of office or at least being present in certain situations if you're in office then you have like even less of an excuse you've got to have um something there to speak to or like some legislation some action to speak to you talking the talk and walking the walk at the same time but the more and more that the left chooses not not to hold their ground but to continue to embrace these bad faith sort of attacks on their own i mean not only does that discourage people who are within that coalition to me who are like okay well if i'm part of the ndp and i stick my neck out for these issues that i agree on or like my constituents agree on i will get no support and my political career will reach like a very quick end that doesn't encourage a lot of people to run with the ndp that doesn't encourage a lot of people to get like um become a part of that movement that doesn't encourage a lot of voters either to vote for them either it continues to perpetuate the cycle of like not really caring mm -hmm. yeah it's like if the ndp could actually prove to people that they would do the policies that the liberals promise the ndp would definitely you know skyrocket in popularity because again it's politics it's the media the media doesn't help the NDP, the media is often biased against the NDP, much like your media is biased usually against the squad. And since Canadians don't know about bills that are passing or anything like that, or what will often happen is that the NDP will try to, you know, pass a motion or pass a bill to say, okay, we want $10 a day universal childcare. And then that will get voted down. But then come election time, the liberals are like, oh, so we're going to promise $10 a day childcare for everyone without any mention and then the media will report on what the liberals said but not mention that the ndp was trying to push it through first and that the liberals actually voted it down 
it's, I think part of it is the system is just so confusing. It's so complicated. Many Canadians don't know how our parliamentary system, how our political system works. Like at least when it comes to passing bills and things of that sort, I think we have much easier time in the States than in you guys do in the States, but that's not necessarily a good thing because when a party's in a majority, there's nothing stopping them. They just pass through whatever they want. Cause you know, we have a standard set process of the three readings in the house and the Senate, and then it's in or not. And you are obligated almost to vote, to vote within party lines. If you don't, then you can run the risk of being kicked out of the party. And if you're kicked out of the party and you try to run as an independent, it's virtually impossible to win a seat as an independent. And then if you get into parliament and you're an independent, you have no power to do anything anyway. So they really, you have to go with what the party says. You, you don't have much wiggle room unless they actually give you permission to vote your conscience. And that usually happens on things like, oh, who wants to ban conversion therapy? Well, not the conservatives, you know, or the conservatives, they tried in the last parliament to put a bill forth that would ban abortions based on gender. And for some of those things, you know, the liberal government is a little bit more wiggle room if one or two of their people want to vote with the conservatives, those sorts of things, they tend not to care so much. But as soon as it comes to things like, there was a motion passed by the NDP um, to ask Justin Trudeau's government to stop taking indigenous children and survivors of residential schools to court. And dozens and dozens of the liberals just abstained from voting. Justin Trudeau didn't even show up that day for that vote. And he hasn't stopped. Luckily, there was a win for them, for the Indigenous peoples, in the courts recently saying that the government does actually have to pay them out. Because, again, it, it's so much more complicated than people realize. Indigenous peoples don't get the same health care as I do. Uh, they're completely federally run. My health care is more provincially run. So they've had to take the government to court on um, many times to try to get the help they need, the support they need for their medical issues, and the government likes to refuse it. And, you know, survivors of residential schools are trying to get some sort of compensation, some sort of payment, some sort of acknowledgement. And for the pain and suffering and the generational abuse that they've been through. And the government fights them tooth and nail for that. They, they don't want to pay out. They don't want to set that precedent. So I want to have faith that things can change, but after having this election and seeing literally nothing change, like the seat count is almost identical. The NDP only picked up one seat, despite the fact that of all the major parties, they were the only ones to gain votes. So all the other parties lost votes in that election, except for the PPC, which gained the most amount of votes out of all the parties, which was, again, very, very disconcerting. Um, so the amount of support that the NDP would have to have in order to really make a dent, to really get the seat count, would rely on mainstream media also backing them up to some extent, which 
they're not going to do because how many people get their news from, you know, the young people tend to get their news from online, but a lot of the older folks still, you know, it's the cable news. They, they see a quick rundown. That's that. Make in these elections where I mentioned some of the candidates stepped down, uh, the one close to here where he had to step down a couple weeks, like just a day after it was the point of no return of taking your name off the ballot. So virtually the entire campaign, he wasn't on it. He still got 8,000 votes because people weren't paying attention and they just saw liberal beside his name and voted for him. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's, those are the dynamics sort of like at play and that are up against with the left. And so to wind down, I, I want to ask how, what does it look like on the ground, essentially? Because you, you mentioned there's, at least in America, there's a lot of conversation about what does it look like outside of politics? How do we um, organize and mobilize and strategize outside of the political system? Because there is a, there is a lot of a lack of faith within our elected officials, even the ones who are closely allied with us. And so more and more people are looking to um, outside of the normal bounds of politics for, uh, you know, hope, if you will. So do, do you see, like, major movements on the ground there? What, what are some things, like some strengths that are going on? Like, I know mutual aid's popping off, at least in a lot in North America. Um, naturally, that's not enough, though. So what do you see about the sustainability, um, really fast in just a couple minutes that we have here, about the, yeah, the sustainability of the left outside of the political system in Canada? There are definitely lots of wonderful movements on the ground. Um, there's a good chance that the city of Toronto will be taken to court because of the police violence. And that's, you know, through grassroots um, doing the work, you know, taking the pictures and stuff because the mayor of Toronto tried to claim that there was no violence from the police and that in one of the clearings, there were no police there. And yet all the activists have the photos, they have the proof. So the, the ground level grassroots movements they do make a difference, but those usually end up having to go through courts. It doesn't go through the government and bills. It's usually the courts having to make decisions and it's the grassroots pushing for that sort of thing. And I think if enough work together and enough court decisions are made on a certain, certain topic, then, you know, finally the government will actually represent the people and start making bills and laws that will reflect that. But it really is up to the grassroots movements to do this. And I do have hope when I see them on the ground, taking the pictures, documenting things, going to court, trying to push to make the lives of everyone better. Because even now in Ontario, I know there's a movement starting to try to double what people on disability are getting so that, you know, we can get $2,000 a month. And that's doubling it because we're only just over $1,000 a month. And, you know, average rent in Ontario for one bedroom is $1,400. So you, you kind of have to hang on to whatever apartment you have or you're in trouble. But there's movements to take the government to court about that. So it really is the grassroots movements. I just wish, again, like the left, there can be a lot of movements about the same topic, but they're blind to what each other are doing. And they need to start, you know, coalescing and working together. And, you know, like our BML movement needs to team up with your BML movement so that we can start trying to make these changes together on both sides of the border. Because I see that's how 
both of our countries will benefit. Both of our countries will grow that way if we start working together. Because again, if we do something, but you guys don't, then eventually we're going to be dragged back down. And if you guys do something, but we don't, we're going to be dragged back down. So it really has to be a cross-border attempt at this. I think that's a profound advice. Um, And it's stuff that you're constantly hammering away at um left of the box on your youtube channel which i enjoy for getting my fix of canadian politics the leftist canadian um creator space is uh flourishing i would say right now um and i would say you're one of the wonderful parts of that as well so thank you very much sandy for coming on the power report i hope to have you back again and to be back on your show uh hopefully sooner rather than later that would be wonderful thank you so much Yeah, that was a wonderful interview just there um, from Sandy of Left of the Box. Make sure you check that out on YouTube. All the links will be in the description. And now we head to, uh, with German politics, we're switching gears now uh, from North America to Europe. Sean, PowerPort regular, um, audio face camaraderie, uh, here Here. to join us here. And God, I'm really loving this episode because I get to talk about uh, politics and learn a lot more. about other places and just do it with some folks I really enjoy. And so German politics is hella, hella interesting. Um, There's so many ways that it's interesting. And I, of course, like Sean will go into it right now. Um, But it's German politics has been something both Sean and I have followed for a long amount of time, like within our friendship. Uh, Mm -hmm. But I think it's interesting just for folks who don't even have a family lineage in like German or anything at all. Um, I found a lot of interest in Germany just in my college studies because I was um, studying political economy, kind of like the politics of economic systems and the economics of political systems and how they intertwine and interconnect um, as opposed to poli-sci or economics, which are just taught separately. But Germany is a really interesting case study in political economy. Karl Marx is from Germany, uh, the biggest critic of capitalism and its structures. Uh, A lot of those thinkers come from uh, Germany and Eastern Europe, all from that sort of like area. And as a result, you get a lot of really interesting political structures there. Uh, Germany's healthcare system is often lauded as one of the best in the world and as a model that the United States could actually take for, but it's actually a public private system, for example. So there's, um, aspects of that, that conservatives could actually appreciate if they were in good faith interested in actually getting a healthcare system going on. But all of this is centered around Angela Merkel, who has been a really kind of important, a grounding rock, like a centering force, not just for uh, German politics, uh, but for Europe as a whole through um, that much of the late 90s and the like 2000s, just sort of being a central powerhouse of Europe that is, you know, historically had a difficult time keeping even um, the countries within the European sort of like sect and block uh, peaceful and working together uh, through Angela Merkel's leadership just in Germany and also like on the EU sort of stage has led to a period of, you know, not perfect things and a lot of austerity throughout going there, uh, CC Greece. But like (laughs) you, but like you also have, you know, again, in the broad strokes of European history, a period of stability and peace and, you know, neoliberal behavior there. So that being said, Angela Merkel has had her time and she is now um, 
handing off the reins of power to whoever's taking on and the, um, you know, sort of the CDU, CSU sort of like coalition system. And so that is all to say Angela Merkel is a really major figure in politics and her leaving and kind of leaving a power vacuum there has created a lot of interesting dynamics in Germany. So um, Mm -hmm. beyond that intro I just gave, Sean, like I want you to kind of talk about Angela Merkel's sort of like influence and legacy through her leadership um and then like as we kind of alluded to earlier kind of go into a broad picture of the german political landscape just before we got to this election so like we'll talk about the election afterwards but was it like before so i mean angela angela merkel has been in power for about 16 years i'd like to say um big powerhouse in european politics um she's you know one of the like most powerful women in the world. Um, she really brought the Sede Usesu. Um, for those of you who don't know, that's the Christian uh, Democrat Union and the Bavarian Sister Party. They're basically two together. Um, she brought that party more towards the center because the Sede Usesu is the center right, the rightish party of Germany. She would bring that more to the center and try to get more um, younger voters and more um, like leftish leftish ideas into the party and really had like a strength hold on Germany for a long time where the CDU says you would win, you know, 40% of the votes and stuff in elections up until this one. But we'll get to that in a little bit. <clears throat> More with her, she like for a long time was a really big political figure. It still is, but she, she now literally says, I'm tired and I want to step down because I've been doing this for too long. But at the beginning of her um, rise of power and stuff in the 2000s, um, she was one of like the heads of the city or like was slowly rising up, became the head, got voted in and did a lot of different reforms within um, healthcare education um, and really strengthened up Germany's economy. the Germany economy and got it to be really the big central figure in Europe really was pushing for like uh, a big European coalition within the EU and everything. And was pretty known like that to try and help European countries around and get it to be one big consolidated Europe and not try to have um, all these different currencies, different things going on. Because remember you had so many different wars um, that happened in Eastern European countries in the late 90s. I mean, Germany wasn't uni- reunited until 1989. And so you had a lot of stuff going on that she really wanted to try and protect Europe as a whole. Um, yeah, I just, just want to like pause yeah. on that r- really clear because a lot of Americans don't get that history. The Cold War was not the end of conflict in like that central part oh. of Europe by any means. And so oh, like what oh. you're saying, Angela Merkel kind of came at this moment in where she wanted to not just like present a unified Germany so it can, like, kind of grow and, like, modernize in a global, you know, like, post-Reagan-Thatcher um, economic system, but also just try to project peace in a very tumultuous area. Um, and so, yeah, yeah. yeah that last has to be said about her role in that. Yeah, and um, she really wanted to try and unite Germany as much as she could, in a way, because you can't really talk about German politics without talking about, you know, East and West. There's still like a, a cultural divide. There's still a big economic divide and stuff between East and West, even though they've been united. My, you know, they were united before I was even born, but you still have a lot of problems between East and West where the, the West, uh, where West Germany was tends to be a little bit more rich, a little bit more off. East tends to be a little bit more, um, uh, economically downtrodden compared to the West. So you still have a lot of 
resentment and stuff towards each other, cultural stuff here, there. And it's very difficult for people who don't know a lot of uh, German, cult German culture and kind of the history of all of the region to get an understanding of that. But one big figurehead was, or one big kind of uniter was Merkel. She would try and get the, get the center-right party to be more towards the center, more of their neoliberal ideas, and try to have some type of... Uh, um, consolidation throughout Germany and try to have like a rock, a solid foundation throughout Germany and try to have that because Germans like that. They like to have the same thing. You know, they don't really like to, we don't really like to, to have too much change or whatnot. Stereotypically uh, as a people, yeah, you, you know, exactly. we're starting to get into the, like, the, I'm not, not blaming you, but you know, like that there's the whole joke about right. German jokes and it's just like a, a stated fact. <laughs> like it's just, but it's here, a cultural thing. It's true. Yeah, it is. And, but the interesting part is, later on in her career then when younger people our generation and you know gen z they started to want more change they like they wanted more like left ideas they wanted more things especially with um more uh climate change stuff because germany is a very green nation they're really like germans are literally obsessed about trying to be as energy efficient as possible i mean if you go there we have like nine different trash cans to organize all of our recycling and trash and everything so I'm not joking there's things for everything so everything is um try to not create as much waste as possible um but the big thing with that i think derailed her a lot was towards the her last maybe about seven or eight years of power um she had the big immigration policy to try and have immigrants come up through germany and which i'm all for in a way um like i like being having multicultural societies and stuff and i think it's good for germany in the long run but when she did that it created a lot of animosity towards immigrants especially in the east and the south of germany and that ended up bringing back the rise of the far right and then there was all of these other political scandals corruption scandals and stuff within the city and within merkel herself there was the whole brexit thing with, with england and a couple other stuff within european countries that towards the latter end of her reign of power as the as the chancellor chancellor as the chancellor for those who don't speak german um that um really kind of derailed and ended up you know the last four or five years a lot of resentment was starting to go towards her towards the city and um you see this now within this past election and the the divide within the younger populations the different voter structures and everything and then the rise of the far right the afd of of germany and more flat state uh, statements and stuff and um really these uh, big anti-immigrant um sentiments and stuff within the south within the east of germany and um a lot of that was perpetrated by her not handling the situation very well of you have all these immigrants and stuff happening because you know u.s imperialism and shit you know don't like to change and all these other wars and stuff in the middle east these people need somewhere to go and a lot of countries weren't letting them in merkel said hey come up we'll let you do this and that because they like the big thing with germans is we want to have a a good eye on the world so try to have you know, people think that we're a peaceful nation, that we let people in because of our history and her past. Um, and issue with Merkel, when she did that, she didn't really have a, a good enough plan to let people in. She just let people in and didn't have any big, I would say, 
good ideas to have any assimilation into the German population. So now you have a lot of resentment towards immigrants in Germany, um, especially like a lot of uh, Turkish immigrants, a lot of Middle Eastern immigrants and stuff, um, all predominantly Muslim in the north in Germany settled there. A lot now are in, in southern Germany, Europe, in, uh, in Bayern, uh, say Bavaria. And now you have a lot of animosity and stuff towards that, which I think could have been prevented if things went smoother, if things were done a little bit different. And um, yeah, I think that's going to affect the biggest stain in, in her political career. Yeah, I, I think, and you were very clear in this, but like to be very clear, it's, I don't think it's that like, um, I, like it's not that, oh, uh, Angela Merkel bringing immigrants into Germany was a bad call. You're not saying that. You're just saying no, that no, no, no. By, by not, it's the way by, she did it. yeah, by not having a plan. I draw parallels to um, Joe Biden's pullout of Afghanistan, um, the situation with Haitian migrants right now. It's like I think and America. It's, it's, yeah, actually, it's a really big parallel. I was thinking that the other day of the Haitian immigrants. I go, this sounds very similar to Germany, except we don't send cops and like just throw them out. We still let him in <laughs> anymore. <laughs> yeah, 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 right. <laughs> but uh, really fast, I want to get to um, high level because we're starting to throw around these names like uh, CSU. Uh, yeah, yeah. Let's talk so about we'll the political parties. Let's break them down. So, for those of you who don't know, like the structure in Germany, it's a parliamentary system. So each party has a certain amount of power, and each party is a little bit different than others. So. The two biggest ones, I want to know you just talked you talk about this whole time, is the CDU and Stash CSU. They're the center right party, the Christian Democrat Union um, and the Bavarian Sister Party. You have the second biggest party, the SPD, the Social Democrats, which is the center left party. Those are the two ones that have the most power and they've shared coalition governments for as long as I've been alive, just about um, till now. But they've been the two biggest in power, like, like, uh, before America, the SPD was in power. I cannot think of the, the chancellor before her in 2000, but and, it's me. And then really fast, like just yeah. broadly speaking, we'd consider the union between the CDU, CSU, and like pure ass English. We consider that to be like a center-right kind of coalition, while the SPD, even though they have like Seven. the Social Democratic Party of Germany in their name, they're not social democrats. They're kind of more center-left. They're moderate. Yeah, they're definitely center-left. They're more, way more moderate than, uh, yeah, for sure. Um, after that, you have uh, Die Grünen, which means the, the Green Party. Um, they are the more, I'd say, more left left-leaning party they're very focused on green energy like they like in the, on their mission statements they want green energy to be in every single policy that they have and any taxing anything they do is toward like thrown towards green energy to throw towards um trying to fight off climate change and all that you have the F, uh, fdp which is the more like i guess libertarian party where they're uh, more focused on businesses. They don't want as much like tax cuts and stuff for the wealthy and all that. You know those people. We have them here. Um, you have the AFD, which is the Alternative for Deutschland, um, the far, far right extremist party, um, very big anti-immigrant statements with them. Um, now with the when Donald Trump rise to power and when he was in president, a lot of the sentiments that you get uh, in, here in the U.S., you got in, as Germany as well through the AfD. And you have Die Linke, which literally means in German, the left. They are the most left party of Germany. They are more of your, um, you have a lot of socialists in there. You have uh, social Democrats. Um, they'll be more of the um, 
government regulation, trying to get much as wealth, welfare for people as much as they can, you know, regulate businesses, energy, all that stuff. And that's kind of like a, um, a rundown on the like, political parties. Th- those there's the, a lot of different ones. <clears throat> I would say that those are the parties that have like some semblance of representation. Well, they're in, the ones in, that have. Yeah, in, in Bundestag. Part. Yeah, right. So, yeah, like, so in, in Bundestag, those are the ones that have people in seats. Because, yeah, you've there definitely got other, other parties. parties. You've got more left parties. I don't want to start that can of worms exactly. in the comment because section, you right? Have a com- you have communist parties. You have, like, the Mar- Marxist parties and stuff. You have even more right parties than the AfD as well. Um, but they're really small. We'll get to that in a second. But that's kind of gives you an overview of it. But how it works in Germany for, like, the political process is you don't vote for a candidate. You vote for a party who then puts in uh, a central figurehead or two, depending on the party, as their representative leaders. With Very similar America, to, I was just going to say, um, just for the context of this episode, just similar to Canada. Yes, very similar to Canada. Um, and with Angela Merkel, she stepped down as the head of the CDU. After the last election, I think about two years ago, she said, that's it. Like, I've after this term is up, that's I'm going to be stepping down as the um, head of the CDU. And then there was a big fight for power. And it ended up being um, Armin Laschet, who's the head of the CDU, um, taking control of the party. And that had big ramifications for this election. Um, but that's where we talked about Merkel before, kind of like her, her legacy, everything, kind of the history of her, a little bit of German politics, European politics in general. And now with her stepping down, the CDU has changed and shifted more towards the right, um, which had a profound impact on this election um, with the way it turned out. But we should get into that right now. Yes, so, please tell them. So what were the results of the election, broadly speaking? Um, who so was, like, who came out on top? Were, it's, it's September 26th, I believe. Um, again, you vote for a party, and then the party has people. So what ended up happening with this election was the SPD, the center-left party, won about 26% of the vote, and the CDU won 25% of the votes. So there isn't a majority sh- there isn't a majority win, even though the SPD said, and, um, and uh, Olaf, uh, Olaf Schultz, the head of the SPD, said, came out big and made a big speech, we won, blah, blah, blah. Technically, they did win, but... They need to create a government. This is what happens in the parliamentary system. You have to now make coalitions with other parties to have enough percentage of the whole entire vote to then make a government. This is where it gets fun. It's not like in the U.S., right, where you have basically a two-party system, more or less, and whoever has the most, um, you vote for that candidate, they win. And here, you vote for the parties. The parties with the most percentage of uh, votes wins, but... Within creating a government, you have to have a majority share of the parliamentary seats. So now, um, the Grünen was had about I think twelve percent of the vote or eleven percent of the vote after the uh, CDU, which is a big uptick from the previous election. I think they had the biggest uptick in percentage votes, especially especially among younger people. Um, and now it's a fight for power of. Um, now the SPD and the CDU trying to um, go into talks with the different uh, parties to see how many people they can get in, what 
they can consolidate what different things they can do to then um, create a government. So right now it's a giant fight for power on who's going to control the German government. And I know Olaf Schultz, he made a big promise. He says he wants it done in November, which good luck. Um, and right now, Merkel is still technically uh, the chancellor. There, she's not She's not going to get out until the um, new government is in charge and has been created and formed. And then after that, then she's out. Um, after that, and then it's going to be um, for sure a male in in charge of Germany for the first time in sixteen years, which is kind of crazy to see. But. Um, Right now, no more girl boss energy coming out of Deutschland. No more girl boss energy, exactly. No more, yeah. It's the self size things. Um, <laughs> wrong country. Um, right now they're doing, they're going um, in German. It's Sodernianskespresha, uh, which is like your preliminary talks. So what's going on is now in between each of the parties, they're talking and trying to see get their feet wet of who's going to form a coalition. Once they like figure out what compromises and stuff, then they go to uh, which is the coalition talks. And now that's when they'll be, okay, we can form a coalition within within these certain regards. So um, right now you have talks, the SPD and Die Grünen are, are, are talking because they're the more left parties in Germany. And Obviously, the Green Party, they want as much um, policies within with with renewable technologies, within climate change policies. They want as many of that as they can get within the, the SPD. They really want to work with them on that because they think they can do that more than the CDU. Um, interestingly, kind of a curveball within the election as well is that the FTP, I think, ha had the... Um, where they were right behind the SPD um, within the election results. So they also have a say in who can form a government as well. And they're the more libertarian party. So they're big on um, not wanting to do these different um, welfare systems, not doing too many tax cuts for the wealthy and all of that. Um, while the, the Green Party wants more um, taxes taken out of the wealthy to then fund more of the welfare programs and stuff in Germany, especially because the more immigrants are coming in, you're having to have a bigger budget for all of that. And now they're trying to see which of the main two, the SPD or CDU, creates that coalition between the Green Party and the FDP, the Libertarian Party, to then create a government. So it's a giant clusterfuck of trying to you know, micromanage, micro deal, do all these back things of whoever's going to be the most happy. But it's going to be interesting to see what happens. It's going to be months long, honestly. But it has huge ramifications for Europe because whatever coalition comes out of it, you know, they're the big center center heads of the European Union. So, example, if it's the SPD, um, CDU, and the Green Party Union, they're going to have, I call it the uh, the traffic light variation because the colors of them are um, um, yellow, red, and green of this uh, CDU, SPD, and Green Party. If that happens, the SPD will have the most in charge, but the Green Party will also have a lot of voice for the first time, really, in um, German politics to have a big voice within making giant policy statements. That's going to have big ramifications for Europe because having them, the Green, have that much uh, control, 
they can now set standards for the European Union for other countries around the world of, hey, look, we're doing all of these tax policies, all these other things to get into green energy. And within there, that can have an effect within other countries to see looking as a leading example. That's their big goal. Um, really never before have you had three parties ha have this much control in Germany. It's almost always been the SPD and CDU. Every time one is in power more than the other, but they always make a coalition government. That's what happened last time. The actual the FDP head um, literally walked out on talks last election cycle, literally said, I would rather, uh, you know, it's better to have no government than a government that I don't agree with. A few saying and walked off. It's one of my favorite things ever in German politics because it's hilarious. Um, so these talks are vicious. They're very important. They're they're brutal. They're long, and they have big ramifications for for um, for the world, honestly. So yeah, it'd be interesting to see. We got water. One second. <clears throat> yeah, all good. Um, I think the interesting thing here will be like. It looks like the SPD, like overall, will come out like the top dogs in the situation. Like not totally. More they need more to like yeah, yeah. They they need to like obviously build a coalitional government, and that coalitional government will create roadblocks because you'll have to, um, much like you do in the American system, you'll have a couple of um, members of the Bundestag, the German Parliament there, who will form coalitions on particular issues, maybe right. on the interests of their particular localities, maybe on their financial interests probably on their financial interests. And so you'll, you'll have these like um, very stubborn like groups of people uh, creating roadblocks um, regardless in the system. But I think it's really important here to think about like the SPD as a, hello fly, the SPD as, um, as it exists in um, Germany and who like Olaf Scholz like is as a leader because he comes from the kind of center, like, it's hard to say the center right of the SPD, but like it's a center yes, he's left party. So he's, yeah. Of, yeah, of the SPD. Um, he, he was, yes. a, I just want to say really fast, he was in support of, so back in 2010 when like everyone was recovering from the um, economic uh, recession, yeah. uh, Germany was especially hit hard. And because of Germany's interesting position in the European Union, um, it, was sort of responsible for or like had a big role in the monetary policy of other countries in Europe, such as Spain, such as Greece, such as France, because they shared a currency. Uh, in the United States, we can do things with monetary policy involving, you know, the Federal Reserve, or we can do things that are separate from the Federal Reserve involving fiscal policy, which involves Congress and the president, things like that. Um, but in Germany, you have to think about, okay, there. The, the European Central Bank is not really just the control of Germany's. It's the whole like European system. But whoever are the bigger, more successful players in that have an outsized role in that system because of that shared currency. And so around that time, Germany was leading a lot of and leading the call for a lot of austerity measures, um, basically raising a lot of taxes, not only on the richest people, but also on folks who were... Um, not like doing so well like economically and that had like ramifications politically in greece and a lot of other different places leading to a lot of their um, rising far-right um governments and things like that and so it really kind of became a case study at that moment for um ensuring that you I guess it kind of became a case study for where you stood as a leftist, especially because in response to this in other parts of the world, you had Occupy movements as like a leftist right. response to all the things that were happening um, 
in these austerity measures and this like uh, unequal response to the economic crisis where it seemed like the rich continued to get richer while people who are struggling were struggling just harder and more people were joining the struggling ranks. And so all that being said, Olaf Scholz was on the wrong side of history in that very much so and supported a lot of the um, austerity level like kind of policies. And the left wing has pretty much hated him ever since. That being said, that's how you get power, not just in Germany, but in like world politics, it seems. Western Western politics, baby. Yeah. So what balance do you think um, Olaf will be able to ride in office? And do you think it's going to be like more of like Angela Merkel's um, status where it's sort of like shifting um, in between sorry being long-winded about this but sort of like Angela Merkel sometimes would understand that okay this is not the way I want to govern this is not the way the CSU or the CDU want me to govern but this is the way Germany's going a la like uh, marriage equality for example so yeah. let it pass do you think that Olaf Scholz will do that more for the left, or do you think more often than not he will continue to be a roadblock to progress, a la a Joe it Biden? Depends. It, it depends on who, who the coalition's formed with. If they have like the the coalition where Grünen has um, a big say, then he won't. He cannot be a roadblock in a way because they won't have enough votes to roadblock a lot of stuff. Depending on certain things, but if they make deals with the FDP, the more libertarian party instead and they form coalition within them, then you're going to have a lot more roadblocks within within leftist policies. The interesting thing, though, um, within this election cycle is that the the voter base really had their say that they don't want right politics in Germany. So what happened with the CDU is that they their um, their head, uh, Armin Laschet, was pushing the party more to the right, more and more to the right. Um, he, he, they had this um, party elder, um, for lack there of a better term, um, uh, Friedrich Merz, who is a really big, um, or was a big political head, um, but they has a lot of power and say in the CDU, and he's a big um, uh, eco- economically right people where he wants more stuff for businesses and more things like more um like traditional german values this and that but the people really didn't respond well to the cdu doing that and that's how they lost like so many votes was because of that um and who gained the most out of it was the green party the green got a shit ton of those votes from the cdu that they normally the cdu would normally get especially within younger voters because the green party was saying hey we're more left-leaning obviously we want to have more of a say with everything our political stuff within climate change and all of that and that's where they gained the most amount so within that with Olaf Scholz's SPD, they have to listen to the people. They have to listen to the Die Grünen and come up with some type of compromise within creating a coalition government of what policies can they do to have as much green stuff as possible within um, what the Green Party says, because the people really said that they wanted that. And seeing how much this CDU lost power, because mind you, before this, you know, two election cycles ago, last election cycle, relatively speaking, CDU had a ton of power. You know, they would win 40 percent of the vote, 50 percent of the vote because they were known as the People's Party. They were known as the party of of the regular everyday person. And now they're not, you know, they shifted more towards the right, especially with Angela Merkel stepping down. 
I mean, that shit gaining power. So Olaf Scholz knows that he's been in German politics for a long time, so he can't be too big of a roadblock to um, be able to stay in power. Because if they end up, you know, making a coalition with the CDU and it ends up just being a normal government that was before, they're going to lose power. They're going to get out of of having those two parties be the big heads. And you're already seeing it right now with this past election cycle. So um, it's it's interesting. There's a, there's a lot to to think about, a lot to say with it. Yeah, I, I I see once again, like not to do so much of a um thing. I'm trying in this episode not to only to draw parallels between uh, the United States and other countries, not to say that, oh, it's exactly like this. We should reduce politics to an understanding of only the United States, because I think that's um, not only is it reductive um, and it can absolutely it gets dangerous in a way. But it also then you, th- you could think of, oh, you only have two parties here. But look, in Germany, you have the now you have a three party coalition government. Yeah, you there's miss, no there's no ways about it. You can't have a two party. You're going to have to have a third party. You, you you miss a lot of local nuances and you lose a lot of um actual like perspective at like what can yes. actually be done in different like political universes. So understand that I'm only coming at it from that position. Um, but that being said, I think that there's a lot of parallels in the idea that this is kind of a do or die moment for the SPD in Germany because you are getting um, rising movements in mm-hmm. the right wing as well um, through AFD, through some of like the more extreme uh, folks that are coming from the yeah. CDU and the CSU. Like, like it's it's yes and, yes and no. Yeah. The AFD actually lost a lot of power um, compared to last election, and they lost. Um, I think out of everybody, other than the CDU, they lost the most as well. I think they lost maybe about 4% of what they did last election cycle. So they're losing traction and everything, but they're here to stay. I, I'd also they- say that a lot of, because of the their existence, they've forced other parties yeah. to go a little bit further right. Like they always have that like sort of lasting impact, even if it kind of like loses um, in the seats. And also there's that impact in the culture. These Im- issues involving yeah, yeah. like immigration are That's going true. to continue. But like that, that is an important distinction to make there. But yeah, the fact that the SPD and sort of the center left has to be a little bit less center left because I guess to correct myself, a lot of the energy in German politics is on the left wing, especially involving the environment, especially involving mm. social issues. But you do have um efforts working against that pretty actively in uh German and European business um yes. in uh yeah this new like libertarian thing with the FDP I think it's really interesting but not as interesting as what's going on in Berlin mm-hmm. um because this is one of the most hard in the paint things ever so <laughs> I a long story short, the best way I can describe this, and the shortest way I can describe this, is that uh, Jelly Donutters, Berliners themselves, <laughs> offered to <laughs> deep state German joke right there. Uh, they offered, they basically voted to expropriate and like take over uh, land and like luxury residential property, and then offer it to like you know Germans who need it in the city of Berlin for like highly subsidized rates. I mean, like taking all of the economic finance jargon out of it, they literally just took property and are giving it to people. Like, and and essentially, yeah. 
or they're making it the really cheap to do so. Berlin too is it's such a multicultural place. You have so many different people that live there. It's not like your typical, you know, it's not Bavaria, the south of Germany, where you get your, you know, your your typical Germans. Berlin is so diverse. You have all these different melting pots of people and whatnot there. So you have a lot of discrepancies between people. It's not as bad as like the port city of Hamburg or, or a little bit in the north of Bremen and other uh, other cities that have a lot of uh, immigrants as well. But within Berlin, you have that big multicultural hub and you have more immigrants and stuff there as well that need help. And you have Germans there that need help. And it's such a cool thing that they did that to, to just do that little part where Berlin's a ex- pretty expensive place. Um, there's a lot of housing available and to now give it to some people that need it is it's a really cool thing i thought yeah and then there's important things to note so the measure is not legally binding it's more just like a um it's an on the record recommendation that the people of germany have essentially voted to yeah expropriate these large corporate landlords and make it so you could um, like, yeah, and the vote one in 10 of Berlin's 12 districts make it so um, the city could actually do something to fight against rapidly rising rents. I mean, it's the same thing that's happening in major cities across the mm-hmm. world where um, at the same time you have a very visible crisis with people being unhoused that was only uh, exacerbated by COVID-19. At the very time you have a situation where young people who weren't totally able to get on their feet um, after the economic crisis of the 2008 to 2010s mm-hmm. are now facing the dual economic crises of COVID-19 um, and everything that's coming with that, having a di- more difficult time uh, getting access to housing and other services even in a place like germany where you do get a lot of these social services available um, added to the fact that there's an increasing um gap between that first group of people we were just talking about who are at the very edges of society or like a lot of people just like barely struggling to make it through and then the ultra rich who are not even utilizing these properties or often using them as just like investment properties um a lot of times they sit empty or just like not even fully um there but yeah this is a it was a years-long campaign from leftist activists who like worked on the streets together and like talked to german residents like really mobilized on this issue and they voted to expropriate more than two hundred forty thousand privately owned apartments um and the campaign was <laughs> promptly named deutsche wohnen and co in Thailand, which means expropriate <laughs> um expropriate deutsche wohnen and company um yeah. It defied negative polling. It defied warnings from business leaders and the media. And so I think it's a really amazing opportunity, um, or at least an example. Definitely it's an opportunity for um, leftists mobilizing outside the political system in Germany uh, to see what can be done, at least what kind of message can be sent. Of course, you need to like build the legal teeth around this to make sure it works. But um, what kind of message can be sent when you do actually um, work together? Uh, I think in a situation like Germany, for example, where it's so hard to get the left to organize and actually collaborate and get to working together um, in a proper way, it's a good example of what could be possible when the left can 
kind of work together and like kind of like <laughs> stop getting into petty arguments and disagreements and actually say, hey, this is for the record, the changes that we want to see in the world, mm-hmm. the tangible changes. Yeah, you know, yeah. My I, I, my joke always on Power Report about dysfunctional lefty. Well, no, dysfunctional. Let's look at the Linka Party. Man, they are crazy. <laughs> they could do so good. Like they do so much good if it was just if they just organized. That's such a big thing, and you get that all over across the world and everything. Um, but that that the housing thing is awesome. I think it's yeah. When I when I heard about that, I was like, that's insane and cool and. Benin needs that because of how expensive it is to live there. Um, currently, you do have a lot of um, subsidies and other things of, of in Germany that you don't get, especially in the U.S., because the U.S. doesn't give a shit about people. Um, even with those uh, helpings of welfare systems and other things, um, child credits, um, public tuition, uh, a free public tuition colleges and all that stuff, um, you still need help, especially with COVID and how it's affected so many people. And you I mean you're still coming? It's only ten years past the the recession too. So it's there's or it's eleven years past with that. So um, yeah, it's a really it's a really cool idea. I like it. Yeah, and um, I think it's really fascinating that uh, Franzika Giffey, who has just been elected the mayor of Berlin, yep. on the um, SPD like party yes. was originally against this and like didn't back the bill, but it's now like okay, I guess we'll have to draft it and like okay, we'll have to listen and, to people and do something. But that's the thing with Germany is that like within the politics, you have to listen to people. In it, relatively speaking, the people have a big voice in there, which is something that I really like. I, I would um, say, I would say bigger, but I, I think I mean yeah, yeah yeah more often than not like corporate interests, you know, like international corporate interests in capitalism like went out the day. No um, shit. Oh, oh always. Yeah, always. yeah. Um <laughs> and I, I think it will go to see like okay, how far will this actually go? So it'll be important for that um the the insurgent leftist movement that helped get this um defy all the odds in this um to continue to put the pressure on the local level and to use international pressure and support and uh get people in the media to um talk about this as well i'd love to talk to some people from berlin in the future and definitely sean you come on for that episode and talk about like what it's like on the ground organizing there in that kind of space because i think um maybe the audience can kind of get from these past two things uh to two like segments here i think getting to a place of leftist solidarity um Mm -hmm. internationally um not just will help us see like the bigger issues at play here and will help us get past some of like the pettier differences, I at least hope, or at least help some yeah, people get yeah. past the petty differences. You'll always have people who are petty by default, but it will actually help build tangible power because if you have uh, elected members of um, leftist parties in Germany speaking on climate and passing climate legislations in a forceful way at the same time, um, and the same way as folks are in other countries, like in Canada and the United States, in um, places in Latin America, places in Asia, like there are a lot of other places where I think like this could possibly start to take a hold potentially. Um, imagine how much power that can be by drawing an international narrative and an international discussion about this and showing that solidarity and giving people a chance to imagine something greater than the political malaise that we're like currently experiencing. So those are all things I think would be interesting to see in the future. Um, 
And I guess the last thing I did want to end on, because like it is the elephant in the room, is like kind of concerning, is that like we already said, like, yeah, um, off day, they have lost a little bit of power here. Um, but th- there's still that cultural festering. Like uh, you could easily report outside of the United States that, okay, um, Joe Biden won the presidency. The Democrats uh, have a narrow majority in the Senate. Um, the moderate Republicans that do exist in the Senate have to act like fairly moderate. They can't be super Trump outgoing. You have a lot of Trump um, loving uh Republicans in the House, per se, but the House is a different story, and there's a Democratic majority in the House. So an outside international observer could look at that and go, America is rejecting extremism. But of course, we live in the United States, and we know like um, you did, like racial resentment has like never been higher, and you can feel that temperature rising, and um, Uncle Joe isn't necessarily putting water on that fire. So like, what... What what do you do you feel like there might be a similar thing happening where okay they're out of power in Germany but th- there can be you know um, cultural fears and things that are stoked potentially there and could be utilized and exploited the next time elections come around. My hope is no, but with the rise of the AfD and the history of. Germany's mainly the fall of the wall and everything and the um, the reunification um, it's more than likely going to stay you'll have like the past couple of years you've had a rise of extremism you've had a lot of anti-semitism you've had a lot of anti-immigration stuff um, a lot of that honestly was was what they were seeing here in the US there was like um a lot of the, the extreme right we're seeing Trump, like, you know, say the things he did, all, all the stuff we know what happened. Um, they took that and then brought that to Germany a bit. And you could see the repercussions of it. The nice thing within what I'm seeing now is you have a big contingency among younger people that they don't want that, that they want you know, a multicultural Germany, they want more people to come together, all that, all that good sentiment and everything. Um, you see it within the polling, within the voting of, of who voted for who. And the more time goes on, I think it'll slowly dissipate, but it's always going to linger. I mean, within a population of people, you're always going to have extremists kind of no matter what. Um, and in Germany, it's going to take a long time um, because <laughs> The divide between peoples, between East and West, um, between even North and South, it's it's a lot. There's a lot of animosity towards each other. There's a lot of jealousy of of who got what, who had better living conditions, what happened at the end, who got to keep their traditions, who didn't get to keep their traditions, who got better infrastructure, who didn't, this and that. And you have a lot of resentment towards each other. And it's not even gener- it's not even been a generation. It's past. So you have a lot of the animosity in there and within that that you know bubbling pot of you know just of pain of of anger of a lot of confusion everything else you have these sentiments that now start rising and within the rise of extremism in other countries you know a lot in eastern europe a lot in russia obviously here in the us you then get that sentiment to other people. They see that and they're like, let's bring that here to Germany. We want, you know, a, uh, we want more traditional values. We want this and that. We want a, a 
Germany for Germans. I mean, Europe has a lot of racist sentiments. Um, you have the like, Europeans, like, Europe for Europeans only uh, sentiments and stuff throughout. You get that a lot in Italy. Um, and that sentiment will be in Germany. Um, and it's going to stay for a while. But um, my hope is within the younger the younger people within the more with the younger coalitions and 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 um groups and stuff that form and all that they can hopefully slowly oust that thinking oust that out i mean but it's just it's gonna take time i mean especially within house like the wall was not barely 30 years ago so it's crazy yeah and I, i think that's something that doesn't get said enough too um is the divide between east and west you still going to have that yeah there's a north and south divide in germany as well but there's definitely an east and west divide yeah. also um, um and i want one, one small tangent and this is for americans um as as shitty as the off day is has as racist as they are as shitty as like their policies and extremely dangerous that they are they're not going they're not running on taking away your health care or your school <laughs> You know, the as as terrible as the extremists and stuff are in Germany, we still have an underlying base of coverage for peoples, which is ironic as hell compared to the right here where they don't really give a shit about human life and they want to stomp on you any second they get. Like with off day, they're not saying like, oh, hey, we need to privatize everything in healthcare and stuff. Maybe you get a little bit of that in the FDP because, you know, libertarians like to think they're smug and everything, but... It's just funny how no matter which party it is, it's never going to get rid of a lot of the safety net that you have established in Germany. Because it'll be little things here and there. It's extremely popular. Even people on the far right, they like it. They don't want to get rid of it. And and I think it it goes to say as a lesson that once you implement something, it might be hard to do it kicking and screaming because the people who are opposed to that social safety measure know that people will like it across multiple different measures of the aisle of like political yep. aisles because it is a tangible benefit they are getting in their lives they feel like the government's taking care of them um and if you can market it right and sell it right and get the economics right through it people will enjoy it and so Correct. i think that's one of a lot of lessons to take out of this episode again don't draw exact parallels between countries but compare contrast and use that to build a broader understanding of the world around you and also how potentially there are solutions to make a difference that aren't being talked about in a lot of other places. But yeah. And Sean- I, I mean, I'm nowhere near an expert of German politics and everything. I've just been following it for, I don't know, 12, 13 years. So I like know a little bit about it and obviously speak the language and remember German. So that helps, but there's so many different avenues and stuff you can get. Um, to look it up like for English speaking stuff, uh, DW Deutsche Welle is decent. I mean, they're a bit neoliberal naturally, but there's a lot of videos that they're posting on it for the elections that gets you a decent idea um, of, of stuff. And then from there, you can go down different rabbit holes of different literatures and different stuff of finding out what the ramifications are of each different outcomes of all the, the coalitions that can happen. And to see what the ramifications are for that, for Europe, for Germany, and for across the world, and what that can, that what that can help you decide to do with your organizing in whatever country you're in, wherever you are, to then help um, 
I mean, obviously we're leftist podcasts, so we prefer left ideas. Um, but whatever it is to help you do what you think is good for the good of humanity, I think is a good way to put it. Yeah, when it comes down to how you treat people, when it comes down to how to interact in politics, exactly. use it to build a broader perspective of the world around you. Exactly. Great point. Um, Sean, thank you very much. You can be found on uh, p- episodes of Power Report like this, uh, panel episodes of Power Report that we do, uh, Audio Face uh, show <laughs> podcast we very much enjoy, um, getting a lot of fun on. Um, you can find that at youtube.com slash audiofacepod or go to audioface.show for all of those links. Um you can find all of Sean's links and where to find them if you trust you, um, and the video description and the podcast description as well. You can find all the links to um, where I exist at Dan from the Web on Twitter, at Dan from the Internet um, on Instagram at youtube.com slash Dan from the Internet where you might be watching this, or powerreport.world for the sh- podcast and show Power Report. Um, thank you very much for watching and enjoying this episode. Again, I'll, also all the links to um, Sandy Lovas and Left of the Box and all the stuff that Sandy's doing there can also be found in the description as well. And we'll be back on the next episode of Power Report. Thank you very much again and stay safe.